You ready for it? That song hit the airwaves in 1991. I was seven years old in first grade. You can bet I wasn't allowed to listen to that song at home. I grew up in a pastor's family, but I went to public school. And so that song hit, and it was, it was number one in the world. It actually only made it to like number 13 in the United States, but in different countries, that song charted out at number one, and it was, it was very popular. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things they had and the bad things that may be. And as seven-year-old Andrew in first grade, I had no idea what sex was. Neither did my classmates. But we went to the playground and we theorized often about what sex was. We heard the word in the song and we thought we should try and figure out what it was. And so I remember 7.5 miles from here, I went to North, Northport Elementary School in Brooklyn Center for my kindergarten and first grade year. And I remember sitting on that playground talking with my friends about what we thought sex was. And I won't tell you the rest of my sexual education journey because there's no need to go into that, but we all have this interesting story about engaging this topic, right? Sex and sexuality. And Christians have been known far too often to either bury their head in the sand related to the topic of sex and sexuality or to stand on a soapbox and to spew biblical truth, but in a non-loving way. That's kind, of, that's kind of the general assumption about Christians and how we engage this topic. Bury our head in the sand, ignore it, or spew hatred about it. And so we're going to engage this topic over the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about sex and sexuality today. Next week, we're going to talk about sex within inside of marriage. The week after that, we're going to talk about singleness and sex and singleness and relationships. And we're going to talk about embracing your relational status. We're going to talk about divorce, kind of all things related to human sexuality and relationships. I can already feel the room squirming. Those of you live streaming at home, you're like, I'm so glad I'm not sitting in that room. What an awkward conversation. But the gospel calls us to engage this topic. Not to bury our heads in the sand and not to spew hatred, but to engage this topic in humility and love. And so before we get into our text for today, I just want to give you a few ground rules that I personally am working with as I engage this topic, as I've thought about sex and sexuality over the last couple of years. Number one is that we want to engage in humility. We don't want to run from the conversation and bury our head in the sand. We want to engage this topic of sex and sexuality, but we want to do it in a posture of humility and not pride. The world, in fact, that's one of the phrases that our world and our culture uses related to sex and sexuality, right? Pride. We don't want to engage this topic with pride. We want to engage it with humility. And in that, we want to weep with those who weep. There's a lot of hurt and brokenness, sin and disappointment and confusion related to sex and sexuality. And the Bible calls Christians to weep with those who weep. So those who have been hurt in this area... And that's many of us, those who have disappointments, most of us, those who have confusion, we want to weep with those who weep. We want to listen before speaking. The Bible calls Christians to listen before speaking, and, and so we want to listen. I, I, I'm obviously going to be talking here for about 40 to 45 minutes, depending on how quick we get through this, uh, but I want you to know that I've spent a lot of time listening to various voices on this topic, and I encourage you to as well. Our, our resource page on our website is full of some different voices that I've been listening to. There's many more that I didn't get on that web page, but uh, my posture is to listen to people um, across the spectrum of 
of opinions on sex and sexuality. And so I'm listening to non-Christians, I'm listening to Christians, I'm listening to heterosexuals, I'm listening to homosexuals, I've been listening to, and what, what I've actually found, just, just I want to share this with you, and you're going to hear a lot of quotes from same-sex attracted Christians this morning. I found them to have the most clear voice on biblical sexuality and a holy sexual ethic Christians who have same-sex attraction, but yet they are pursuing holy sexuality. I found them to be the most helpful. As I think about, as, as a married guy, and thinking about my own sexual purity, I've actually been most helped by listening to people who have same-sex attraction, but they're trying to surrender their sexuality to God. And so, listen. I encourage you, go out and listen, listen, listen widely. Think deeply on this topic. I want us to be repenting of personal and corporate idolatry. As we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, we're, we're talking about idolatry, right? The Apostle Paul is pulling out different idols of the human heart. The first four chapters were about leadership idolatry, and now chapters 6 and 7 deal with sexual idolatry. And so we could refer to sexual sin, sexual brokenness. Really, sexual sin is a form of idolatry. Idolatry is when we put things higher than God, when we worship things other than God, when we're, when we're drawn to give in to the cravings of our flesh, that is idolatry, and so I, I think we as Christians and as a church, we need to spend some time repenting of our own personal idolatry related to sexuality, like however that hits you, uh, wherever your brokenness and wherever your sin is related to sexuality, you should spend some time just repenting, bringing it into the light. And then corporately, the church has done a pretty poor job overall of engaging this topic with truth and grace. And so when we see institutions and church hurting people who have deep wounds related to sex and sexuality, we need to lament that and repent of that. I want us to be submitting to the biblical sexual ethic. That, that is my authority. That is our authority. My, my aim is to understand what the Bible has to say about sex and sexuality and then figure out how to apply that in grace and love in our culture, in our community. Um, that, that's my aim. You just need to know that. Cards are on the table. I see this as authoritative. And so we want to understand what the Bible has to say about a sexual ethic. We all have a sexual ethic. Everybody who lives has a sexual ethic. Where does it come from? As Christians, ours comes from God and from Scripture. And then lastly, I want us to be fighting sexual immorality with holy sexuality and gospel identity. And we'll talk more about this. That's kind of the premise for the sermon today, is to fight sexual immorality with holy sexuality and gospel identity. So we'll talk more about that as we go. Let's stand and read our text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 9 through 20. It's on page 955 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes to the church. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. 
and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God, may we glorify you this morning as the body of Christ as we engage this topic. Lord, minister to us, heal our hurts, convict us of our sins, empower us to flourish for your glory, for our good and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. This morning, I want to ask three primary questions as we consider this text. What is sexual immorality? What is holy sexuality? And what role does gospel identity play in fighting sexual immorality? What is sexual immorality? What is holy sexuality? And what role does gospel identity play in us fighting sexual immorality? Let's start by talking about sexual immorality. I mean, this text that is the primary word, that's the primary idol that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the church in Corinth now in this section, right? The first four chapters, he was dealing with leadership idolatry, where they idolized certain leaders and they were dividing within the church over certain leaders. And now he's engaging this topic of sex and sexuality in chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you remember in chapter 5, he dealt with a man sleeping with his stepmother in the church and the church was sweeping that sin under the rug and Paul calls them to deal with it. To, to not let sin fester in their community, but to address it. And then the first part of chapter 6, he's talking about making right judgments, that, that, that we are as a community to hold one another accountable to a biblical ethic, to a biblical moral, to a biblical standard. And it's in the context primarily that he shares that about sex and sexuality. And, and I want you to look back at chapter 5, verse 8, as kind of this setup and reminder he says in chapter 5, as he's talking about disciplining the person who is willfully sinning and not repenting, he says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And, and he's alluding to the, the Passover uh, celebration, the, the feast of unleavened bread. That's why we take communion every week, to remember that Jesus came to give us purity and to build a pure family, a pure church. And that's what he goes on to say here. We're celebrating this festival, remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The, the heart here in these chapters that Paul is trying to instruct the church in Corinth into is that the church is supposed to be a community of sincerity and truth or a community of purity and truth. The church is to be a safe place for people struggling, hurting, broken. And so when we apply this to sexuality, it's a, it's a place where people don't have to wonder if they're going to be abused, taken advantage of, where they're going to be harshly judged, um, 
there's a right, a proper, a holy judgment, but not a harsh judgment. And so that's the context here where Paul is now addressing specifically sexual immorality. It's here in chapter 6, verse 9, right? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. And this is in a list of other sins, right? He says idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. So this isn't the only sin. Sometimes churches overemphasize this sin at the extent of other sins. It may seem like we're doing that in the next couple weeks since we're spending four weeks talking about sex and relationships, but that's what Paul is doing here in this passage, what he's addressing in this church. And so I don't want you to, to think that we're like picking on sex and sexuality at the expense of drunkards, revilers, swindlers, greedy. That's the stuff that we deal with more often, right? That's the stuff that comes up more often in Scripture. Pride and, and, and arrogance and gossip. Sexuality comes up in this passage, though, so that's what we're going to deal with. And he, and he talks about sexual immorality. There he talks about sexual immorality in verses 12 through 20 and into chapter 7 as well. And the term for sexual immorality that Paul uses in Greek is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography or fornication from. And it doesn't just mean images on a screen. In biblical context, this, this word sexual immorality, it applies to and it refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That, that's what it means in Scripture. And so you're free to disagree with what Scripture teaches about sexuality and sex. You're free to disagree with what I'm going to say. You're, you're free to, to ask questions and to push back as we go through this. But you need to know that as a pastor and as a church, we're, we're taking our cues from this. And biblically speaking, sexual immorality is defined as anything, any sexual activity or pleasure outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. That's not how our culture thinks about sex and sexuality, is it? This is a very countercultural message, and I'm the one standing up giving it on Facebook Live, so pray for me. So, this, and this is, so the church should repent sometimes because sometimes we make a bigger deal out of a certain form of sexual sin than all sexual sin, right? I mean, if you pull our community, there's, there's many studies done that, that show that a lot of people look at the church and they think that the church is just judgmental of homosexuality of same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction. And Paul here is raising the standard. And it's not Paul. He's following in the teaching of the, the biblical sexual ethic from the Old Testament, Jesus' sexual ethic. You can read what he taught about it in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, holding up this vision of sex and sexuality, that, that sex is meant for a marriage between a man and a woman. So anything outside of that is considered sexual immorality. Premarital intercourse or other forms of sexual pleasure. Sometimes Christians are like, well, we haven't had intercourse before marriage. We've just fooled around a bunch. Well, be careful, because certain fooling around can be considered sexual immorality. Lust and pornography is considered sexual immorality. Same-sex sex is considered sexual immorality. Having multiple partners within marriage is considered sexual immorality. Does this feel restrictive? It, it is. 
Yes, it feels restrictive because it is. This is the biblical sexual ethic. When Paul uses this word, sexual immorality, he is saying that the only moral sex is one man, one woman in marriage. I want to quote Rebecca McLaughlin here, who is a Christian who is same-sex attracted but has surrendered her sexuality to Jesus. She's a Jesus follower. And in her book, Confronting Christianity, she writes, Human thri- humans thrive on boundaries. We can be, they can be spatial, like a baseball field. There's a boundary, a foul line, fair line. There's, they could be temporal, like sleeping hours and working hours, or relational, like a stranger's touch of my body versus a doctor's touch of my body, right? Like a stranger shouldn't touch your body, but a doctor has the rights to touch your body, even though they're kind of a stranger. So she's saying, we, we thrive on boundaries. You don't live without boundaries. She says, if we listen closely to the Bible's sexual ethic, we find that its clear boundaries create both a safe space for sex and a whole arena for a different kind of intimate connection. Within a Christian framework, opposite-sex marriage is set apart as the only place for sexual intimacy. This is coming from a a same-sex attracted Christian who has surrendered her sexuality to Jesus. And she goes on in this chapter in this book to talk about how the church ought to be that place for for friendship to flourish, for people who are single or same-sex attracted and feel like they can never have a companion. And and that's part of the pressure, right, for same-sex marriages. Like, it's not fair to expect someone who has same-sex attraction to, to spend their life alone while the church ought to be a place of family of community, of deep relationship, where if you're single, regardless of the reason why you're single, where you don't feel isolated and alone, we're going to talk about that at deeper length in a couple weeks. But she is saying that the biblical ethic, the Christian framework, is that opposite-sex marriage is set apart as the only place for sexual intimacy. That's the restrictive boundary of Scripture, The biblical ethic for sex is, it's to create a community of sincerity and truth that I already mentioned from chapter 5, verse 8, where people are safe and respected and honored. And just because sex is allowable inside of a marriage between one man and one woman, there's also a way that you can commit sexual immorality within your marriage by not respecting your spouse, by not being safe with your spouse, by not honoring your spouse, by not putting your spouse's needs before your own, by being a taker rather than a giver. So sexual immorality affects marriage as well. The biblical sexual ethic is to create a community of sincerity and truth. It's to honor creation's distinctions. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we remember that God created, and he created the sky and the earth, these these distinctive things, right? Day and night, land and water, man and woman, the, the world is a yin and a yang, right? There are these two, like, opposite but complementing natures in creation. And man and woman is that. The biblical ethic for sex is to honor that and to just acknowledge that's life. It's to honor biology, the, the composition of the human body. There's a unique reason and way that sexual organs are the way that they are. And so the Christian biblical sexual ethic is to honor the creation of our body. We believe in science. We believe in biology. We believe that the body works a certain way. And God created it this way. It's to honor procreation. It's to honor the human longing. It's to maximize pleasure without comparison. 
Now, this doesn't always happen in marriage, right? We're going to talk more about this next week, how just because you do the right things or because you try to submit yourself to what Scripture teaches on sex and sexuality does not mean that you will prosper sexually. And so we'll talk more about that next week. But today, let's just keep with this big arching idea, the biblical sexual ethic. That's that's why it exists. Jackie Hill Perry, another same-sex attracted Christian who um, has surrendered her sexuality to Jesus and has gotten married and has four kids. I think she just had her fifth. She says, my primary idol is not my sexuality. My primary idol is me. I assume that my way and my feelings and my affections and my thoughts are wiser than the word of God. So what I needed to repent of was not my sexuality, but of being an unbeliever, of being a person who refused to believe that God was right and true in all that he says and does. Isn't that amazing? And that's the reality that we need to keep in mind is that this is an issue of idolatry. Not just sexuality, not just the cravings of our flesh, but this is an issue of idolatry. Jackie Hill Perry has an amazing story. I highly encourage you to read this book, Gay Girl, Good God, or listen to her podcast. I put some of this on our website. I'm a podcast guy, so most of these books, I've listened to their podcasts and I've read portions of the books. But she has an incredible story of, of, of being someone who identifies as same-sex attracted and she became a Christian and, 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 and submitted her life to the biblical sexual ethic. And I love that she reminds us here that sexuality isn't your biggest deal. And this could be true for any of us speaking sexually, right? We're talking about sexual immorality. Not just a form of sexual immorality, but all sexual immorality. Isn't this our problem? That we assume that our ways and our feelings and our affections are wiser than God's? And so we feel pulled in a certain direction, Sexual immorality is simply a form of idolatry related to sexual pleasure and release or taking or using of another person or an image. And the Bible calls Christians to flee from it. Look at verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. So hopefully we understand what sexual immorality is, biblically speaking, and the call for Christians to flee from it to repent of it, to embrace God's sexual ethic. Next, let's talk about holy sexuality. What is holy sexuality then? So sexual, sexual immorality is any sexual activity and expression outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. Holy sexuality then is just sex inside of a marriage between one man and one woman and honoring sex. Now, there's, whole, there's complications with that. Again, next week we'll talk about sex in marriage. We'll talk about some of the complications. The week after that, we'll talk about singleness and sex. And so we're going to get deeper into these kind of the nuanced topics around all these in the coming weeks. Today, it's a big picture overview. What is holy sexuality? It's the upholding of God's design for sex within marriage, the opposite of sexual immorality. And this term, holy sexuality, it was coined by a guy named Christopher Ewan, a a man who has same-sex attraction and lived a gay lifestyle until he became a Christian in prison. He found a a Bible in a garbage and started reading it and gave his life to Jesus. And he is practicing celibacy now as a man who has same-sex attraction but wanting to be faithful and honoring to Jesus. And he he wrote a book called Holy Sexuality, which I highly recommend you reading. 
And he says the terms heterosexual, heterosexual and homosexual originate from a secular anthropology that elevates sexual desire as a legitimate way to categorize humanity. Are we in fact defined by our sexual desires and behaviors? The Bible does not categorize humanity according to our sexual desires or any other sort of desire. The shift from talking about sex as what we do to who we are has created a radically distorted view of personhood. Christopher Ewan was saying as a man who has same-sex attraction, that, his, that is part of his wiring. And, and some of these authors disagree on terms. Like some of them are okay with calling themselves gay Christians. Others aren't okay with it. And I don't care about those nuances. The people that I've put on the website have surrendered their life to Jesus and they're wanting to be disciples of Jesus and walk with him faithfully. And we don't need to squabble about terms. And, and, and some of them say that you are born with same-sex attraction. That's part of the fall, the same way that we're all born into iniquity, born into sin. Other people will say we're not born with same-sex attraction, but it's a product of our environment and things from early years. And so, uh, you know, you could debate that all day long, and some of these faithful Christians are debating those things as well. But the point that Christopher Ewan is saying here is that he, he found these kind of two binaries of heterosexual and homosexual, and there's far more identities related to sexuality now, right? There's not just heterosexual and homosexual. There's bisexual. There's, there's a list. I don't have it here because it doesn't matter that much. What he's saying is that people, human beings, we shouldn't be identified by our sexuality. That, that's not at least how the Bible identifies human beings. We are beings created in the image of God. We have sexual organs and we have sexual activity, but we don't have a sexual identity. You can't tie who you are to, to what you do. It's a decision. It's a choice. You choose to act sexually. Now, that, that can be debated, but he's saying, biblically speaking, God sees us as human beings with souls, complex human beings, and we're not identified by our sexuality. And so he's saying holy sexuality is this kind of this third way, this category for Christians, regardless of our sexual temptation, regardless, and, and wherever it comes from, whether you're born a certain way, whether it's developed, whatever hurt, harm, whatever, whatever, whatever is making up your sexual temptation and, and tempting you to identify yourself sexually, the call for Christians is to pursue holy sexuality. And he says that's faithful sex in marriage or chastity outside of marriage. That's it. Those are the two categories. And holy sex is called for in our passage today. Look at verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In the midst of talking about sexual immorality, and there's debate about this passage, is Paul quoting like a Corinthian saying that all things are lawful for me? Some people think that he's actually making a statement here. It's hard to know exactly what Paul is getting at here, but here's the reality. If I could boil down what he's saying in verse 12, it's just because something is allowable doesn't mean it's valuable. Or just because something is forgivable, right? So, so there are things in life that are allowable, but they're not valuable, like apple fritters. So good. Not a sin to eat an apple fritter. Not that valuable. I've eaten far too many of them, and I never feel... 
true confession. Yesterday, I took my kids to Cabela's, and we just wandered around and looked at the animals, and when we got out of Cabela's, there was this, this little donut truck, and I'm trying to not eat gluten right now, but I caved and I ate some of these donuts, and then there was a Taco Bell on the way out, and we stopped and we got tacos at Taco Bell, and I felt awful. Allowable, not valuable, not beneficial. I'm still paying for it today. And just because something's forgivable doesn't mean that it's valuable or best. And so that's the essence of what Paul is saying here in verse 12. That there, there are things within sex and sexuality that, that might be allowable, but are they really beneficial? This could apply to marriage. There are things that, that are forgivable. Everything's forgivable, right? We're going to come back to the gospel, that your sins have been forgiven. Everything is forgivable, but it doesn't mean that we just do stuff because we can be forgiven for what we do. And then verses 13 through 20, I mean, he just goes on to say, our bodies are meant for the Lord. Our bodies are members of Christ. If you're in Christ, you've been united to Jesus. We have spiritual union with God. And we also have union with people that we have sex with. And so that's just a reality that we are united to Jesus. And so what we do with our bodies matters. We're also united to who we have sex with. Sexual sin has a unique impact on us. It says all other sin is outside of the body, but sexual sin is related to the body. And your body is the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. The Holy Spirit of God does not reside in temples, in church buildings, on holy sites around the world. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. And where God is, there is holiness. And so what we do with our bodies, it either keeps in step with what's true of us, or it breaks what's true of us. Our holiness isn't purchased by our ability to not sin. Our holiness comes from God. It's given to us. And so if we want to follow Christ, if we want to fan into flames the holiness that's been given us, the holy fire that we receive from God, we need to align our lives and our decisions with what God says is holy. Paul here is teaching that your temple, your body is a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, and so glorify God with your body. Here's some examples of holy sexuality. I have, I have a friend who was living with and sleeping with his girlfriend. They weren't Christians, and why wouldn't they live together and sleep together? They're not Christians. They don't have a biblical sexual ethic that tells them not to do that. And then they became Christians, and then they stopped living together and sleeping together until they got married. That's a beautiful picture of holy sexuality and redeemed sexuality. I have a friend who is same-sex attracted and is surrendering their sexuality to God. Saying, I'm only going to act on what God allows. At least that's what I'm striving for. I want holy sexuality. I have single friends who are pursuing sexual integrity and purity as they long to be married that's a picture of holy sexuality. Married people, holy sexuality is to think about your spouse's needs as more significant than your own and to serve your spouse. We'll talk more about that next week. Last question. So that kind of covers what I wanted to talk about related to holy sexuality this morning. The last question for us to consider now is what role does gospel identity play in fighting sexual immorality? What, 
role does gospel identity play in fighting sexual immorality? I want to start by just saying all of it. Right? As we look at 1 Corinthians, one of the phrases that we're using a lot, one of the things that we want to keep coming back to is that we fight our idolatry with our identity. If it's related to leadership idolatry or sexual idolatry, the only way to fight idolatry, the only true gospel way to fight sin is to remember the gospel, the good news, that you are not identified by what you do or what you have done or what's been done to you. You are identified now by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you in your place on your behalf. Amen? That is your identity. And the only way for us to engage fighting our sin nature is to be reminded of who we are in Christ and whose we are in Christ. You are God's, as it says here, you have been bought with a price, right? Verse 20, for you were bought with a price. You are not your own, so glorify God in your body. In chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, look at it with me as Paul opens up this letter Before addressing their idolatry, he reminds them of their identity. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that means to be made holy, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This is your identity. You are called a saint regardless of where you're at in your journey related to sex and sexuality. You're not defined by that. You're not identified by that. You in Jesus have this new identity, this new definition. You are a saint. Amen? And he reminds us us of this as well in chapter 6, verse 11, kind of right in the middle of all this conversation about sexual immorality. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's who you are. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justify. That's your identity. And the only way that you can meaningfully engage conversations around sexual immorality as a Christian is to be reminded of who you are. I love what Jackie Hill Perry says, again, in Gay Girl, Good God. She says, people have begun to identify themselves by their affections, and that's dangerous because when you start to identify yourself by your passions, your passions have more power than they should you conclude, if this is who I am, then this is what I can't help but be. But when we come to Jesus, we're new creatures. We are beloved. We are saints. Amen? Fight your sexual immorality, whatever form that takes for you, with gospel identity. And maybe this doesn't seem like a super relevant conversation to you because maybe you've been there and done that and moved on like you're you know, in the later years of life, although I hear nursing homes are quite the risky place sexually. It's true. It's verifiable. So it doesn't go away. But, but some people, this just isn't, isn't the temptation, isn't the struggle. And so your temptation, temptation may be to check out. But most of the people sitting around you, most of the people that you go to work with, most of the people that you live with, most of the people in your neighborhood or your apartment building, this is a huge issue. So learn it for their sakes. Stay up on it for their sakes. Lastly, related to fighting our sexual immorality with gospel identity, I want to share one more quote from Rachel Joy Welcher, who wrote a book called Talking Back to Purity Culture. 
She says, obedience isn't a ladder to heaven. It's a form of worship. The pursuit of sexual purity is not what earns our purity. Our purity comes from Christ, and it's unchanging. Our our pursuit of sexual purity is about worshiping the God who saved us, loved us, and made us pure to begin with. In our pursuit of purity, we will stumble and fall, but God forgives us, and our purity remains intact because he is the source of our purity. That's what it means to fight sexual immorality, whatever form that takes for you, with your gospel identity. Jesus has done something for you that you could never do for yourself. Jesus has washed you. Jesus has sanctified you. Jesus has justified you. So no matter where you're struggling as it relates to sex and sexuality, where you've been hurt, where you've been wounded, where you've been abused, where you've hurt others, where you've wounded others, where you have abused others. In Jesus, there's reconciliation and freedom and forgiveness for sin. Amen? There is wholeness for the areas of brokenness. We take Paul very seriously in verse 11 when he says, you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. And so that's why weekly at Park Community Church, we come back to the table to be reminded that Jesus is the unleavened bread, the source of our purity. Our purity doesn't rise and fall with our temptations and our conquering temptations or being conquered by our temptations. Our source of purity comes from Jesus, the one who is tempted as we are yet without sin. He went to the cross, died a sinner's death, overcame sin and death in the grave, and now has imparted his purity to us. He is our Lord. He is our master. Paul closes out verse chapter 6 with this saying, For you are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is a reminder that you and I have been bought with a price. So if you're striving to follow Jesus and to surrender your idolatry, all of it, any of it, to Jesus. And as it relates to sexual sin and sexual brokenness, would you take communion with me? There's a communion packet in the pew in front of you. Go ahead and pull out the wafer. And the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let me give thanks, and then let's break the bread together. Jesus, we thank you for modeling for us a life of holiness and purity. I thank you for dying in our place, a a sinner's death, and overcoming sin and death in the grave. I thank you for sharing the bread with us and reminding us that you are our purity. Let's break the bread. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take together. Jesus, I thank you for making us pure. That God, the holy, pure, heavenly Father, looks down at us and and calls us saints. That you see us as washed, you have made us sanctified, you have made us justified.
And so, God, we surrender to you. We, we thank you for the new identity that we have. We receive it with glad, grateful, open hands. Lord, we repent of the ways that we idolize our own thoughts, our own desires, our own flesh, our own cravings, what our culture tells us. We repent of that and we come back to you. May you fill us anew with your life, with your truth, with your sincerity and truth. For your glory, for our good and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.